So I had a friend named Shane several years ago, maybe 10 or more years ago. And if his family and friends had not been there, surely he would have been homeless or in prison or only God knows where he would have been. He had gotten into the wrong crowds in high school and in college. He had sold his dad's tools from his business to get more drugs. He had sold a lot of stuff that wasn't his. But his family didn't give up on him. They stuck by him. They gave him tough love. They worked as best they could to protect him from himself. They had his back even when he didn't want it. And they were on his side even when he wasn't on his own side. And because of their persistence, because of the grace of God, he was delivered from that power. It reminds us that we all need someone who will be on our side sometimes. We all need someone to be on our side, especially when the odds are stacked against us. Can you look back on your life and, and think about when you needed someone to be with you? Can you look back on your life at any time and say, if they hadn't been with me, surely I wouldn't be where I am today. You can probably think of times where looking back you can say, if the Lord had not been on my side, I would have been in real trouble. There's no telling where I'd be. If you're a Christian, you know that's the case, right? In our passage, Jacob has finally come to a realization that the Lord has been on his side every step of the way. And that if God hadn't been on his side, then he would be nothing. He would have nothing. So let's look at our passage together and see how that story unfolds, how his, he comes to this realization. So follow along as I read our text, Genesis chapter 31, 1 through 55. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, The striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us. And he has indeed devoured our money. 
All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me? And did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre. And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find the gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me. In the cold by night, and my sheep fled from my sleep, fed, fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. 
But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be as a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahudutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, The Lord watch between you and me. When we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters... Or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. May God bless the reading of his holy word. So I draw my theme this morning particularly from verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. That comes at kind of the climax of this story as Laban has overtaken Jacob and has his own say. So our theme for this morning is this. God is for his people. He is on their side. If you are in Christ, God is for you. And he is on your side. That means he is committed to you. He is committed to supporting you, to helping you, to caring for you, to protecting you, to love you. So brothers and sisters in Christ, what an amazing truth that is. The God of all the universe would be for you, would be on your side. This is amazing grace. And since God is on our side, since he is for us, we have nothing to fear in this life or in the life to come. For if God is on your side, what does it matter who is against you? Jacob has come a long way from his days of being a cheater and a deceiver. The long journey has changed him. And now as he thinks back on his deception-filled past, he feels regret in his heart. He can hear again the crying of his father, the pleading of his brother for another blessing. He himself has tasted the bitter fruit of deception as his two wives fought and vied for his affections. But it's clear throughout this that the Lord is with him, just as he promised he would be. What else could explain the joy Jacob felt as he looked over all of these sons and all of these possessions that he had been blessed with? And now it's time for Jacob to go back to his family. God had kept his promise to be with him and to keep him, to make him fruitful. And now it was time to begin fulfilling that other promise that God would bring him back to the land of his father. 
And so what we will see in this passage is that God is on Jacob's side every step of the way. Particularly, I want you to see three ways that God is with Jacob. He is on his side by giving him direction, protection, and peace. He directs his people. He protects his people and he gives peace to his people. So first notice that God directs. His people, God directs Jacob. The tension had swelled so much that it finally spills over into accusations from Laban's son. And Laban doesn't like Jacob too much after these 20 years either. So it was that Jacob began feeling this pressure to leave when the Lord speaks and tells him, return to the land of your fathers, to your kindred, and I will be with you. He repeats this promise that he will be with him in this journey. God gives Jacob special revelation. He speaks. He gives him direction. He tells him where to go. And this is how God had spoken to his fathers as well. Do you remember? He spoke to Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. He spoke to Isaac. Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. And here he speaks to Jacob to go back to the land of his fathers. So what does Jacob do? Well, Jacob begins to act in a way he should have been behaving all along. He takes the lead in his family. He takes the lead for his wives. He goes to Leah and Rachel and explains to them what has happened and what they're going to do next. He is leading his family. And notice, too, the content of what he says in his explanation. Verse 5, the God of my father has been with me. Verse 7, God did not permit Laban to harm me. And verse 9, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. So Laban's sons, in a sense, were right. And yet, it wasn't Jacob who was doing the taking from Laban. It was God himself. And Jacob tells his wives the instructions that God had given him to go home. And their response, isn't it amazing in light of their past behavior, their response to Jacob here? They say, well, there's nothing left for us here. And our father regards us as foreigners. And they say, whatever God has told you to do, that's what you should do. And then as simply as that, Jacob obeys God. He packs up all of his family, all his things, all his people, and leaves toward the hill country of Gilead. Now there's still a little bit of fear and doubt here, and yet... There is also faith because Jacob obeys. I say there's fear because he packs it all up secretly and quietly and gets out of there before Laban can know about it. But do you see the change that has taken place here? God instructs and Jacob obeys. And here we see that God directs his people by his word and by his providence. Now he does this. First, by calling us out of the world into his kingdom. So like he calls Jacob out of this foreign land, back to the promised land, back to the land of his fathers, we are called out of our sin and out of the darkness and into the light of his glorious kingdom. He calls us out of this world. And he does so by his word, particularly the word of the gospel. You see, we too who are in Christ, are members of this same family. Our fathers are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as God has made a covenant with them, so he has made a covenant with us in Christ. 
For Christ bled and died as a sacrifice for our sins to bring us to God, to welcome us into His kingdom. This gospel is proclaimed and we are directed to the Son in repentance and faith. And we are called out of the world to live as citizens of His kingdom. But there's more here too, for God continues to direct us by His word now that we are citizens of His kingdom. Now He doesn't always do it exactly as we would wish, right? Don't we sometimes wish he would give us an audible voice? Jim, go and do this right now. Okay, I will. (laughs) Give me a sign. Give me a big billboard to tell me what I ought to do and where I ought to go. But he has spoken to us first in his son, Jesus Christ. And then he has spoken to us in the revelation of the scriptures, the special revelation that he has given us. To give us wisdom, not simply as a a guidebook for living, an instruction manual for living, but this is the story of redemption that he has given us, and it teaches us what it looks like to live as heavenly citizens on this earth. Brothers and sisters, this is why we must commit ourselves to the ordinary means of his grace, the preaching of his word and the sacraments. We must commit ourselves to these things because it is in this, especially in the reading, the public reading and preaching of his word, that God is speaking to us. It is here by the word of Christ that we see God nourishing us directing us, giving us wisdom. God directs His people by His Word and by providence. So as we, as we seek to live with heavenly minds, as we seek to live with godly wisdom based on His Word, what does He do but establish our steps? He guides us through His providence. However, this is not true of you who have not yet come to faith in Christ. Think about that for a moment. That God directs His people by His Word, but that those who are without Christ are tossed to and fro, directionless, aimless in this world. So if you're not a Christian, consider what is your aim in life? What is the direction you are going? What is the end destination? And aren't all the things you could think of that would be your goals, things that will end when your life ends, money, possessions, pleasures in this life? Do you ever ask yourself, where am I going? And without Christ, the answer is always nowhere. You are an aimless ship being tossed around in a stormy ocean. You're lost and have nowhere to go, but friend, Christ proclaims his gospel to you right now in this place. Jesus was directed by the Father's word all the way down the road of suffering to the cross. He died for sinners. He died to save sinners. He died and rose again to show the way. More than that, he is the way to the Father. And if you will place your faith in him, He will bring you into His kingdom. He will give your life meaning. He will give you a destination and it will be to your heavenly home. God directs His people. But notice as the tension in our story rises, we also see that He protects them. God protects His people. Like any good story, the suspense begins to build. Laban finds out 
that Jacob has tricked him by sneaking out. But God warns Laban, don't, don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban pursues Jacob and catches up with him. And here's the suspense. What will Laban do? Will he put an end to this flight? Say, no, you're coming back with me. Or at least my daughters and my grandchildren, they're all coming back with me. What will happen? God has instructed Jacob to go to his homeland to fulfill this promise. And Laban seems to threaten it. Will he abide by this warning that God had given him to do Jacob no harm, to not even say anything to him, good or bad. Well, Laban doesn't exactly abide by God's word. He takes his stand against Jacob. And like his sons before him, he brings accusations. Now note in this section, there's sort of a a judicial aspect or theme. Laban presents his case against Jacob. And then in response, Jacob presents his case. Look at Laban's case first, beginning in verse 26. What is he saying there? You've tricked me, Jacob. You've kidnapped my daughters. You haven't let me have a proper farewell, kissing my children and grandchildren. I could do you harm, he says. But God told me not to do so. But you've even stolen my gods? What's up with this, Jacob? Why have you stolen my gods? Now Jacob defends himself. He left, he says, because he was afraid Laban wouldn't let him leave. But idols? What idols? I don't have your idols. And again, we are left in suspense as Laban begins looking, going tent to tent. Going through all of his possessions to see if he can find his stolen idols. If he finds them, surely it means an end to Jacob's travels. The promise would be no more. But he doesn't find him. By God's providence and Rachel's ingenuity, Laban doesn't find them. Rachel has hidden them. She has sat on her father's little gods. Now surely the author wants to tell us something by this. These little gods, little G gods, were helpless. They can't protect those who worship them. No, if they could, they would cry out for Laban's help. Here we are, Laban, come and save us. And yet notice the contrast of the God who saves his people, who rescues his people, who protects his people. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and now the God of Jacob will protect his people. We see it even here in his providence that Laban doesn't find his stolen gods. But we see God's protection even more in Jacob presenting his case in his defense. He presents his case against Laban in verse beginning in verse 36. And of course, Jacob is angry. Jacob says some things perhaps some of you wish you could say to your bosses, right? He just lets it fly. All of this pent up anger and frustration for the last 20 years. He lets it loose. What is my sin, Laban? Why have you chased after me? You haven't found your stolen gods. Look at verse 37. He says, Take your goods and put them right before us all and let them be the judges between us. He goes on in verse 38. Twenty long years. I've not stolen from you. In fact, I took losses myself so you wouldn't have any loss. 
I burned up in the midday sun and I froze at night. I've served you 20 years and you have changed my wages 10 times. And then there's the key verse, verse 42. If God hadn't been with me, if he hadn't been on my side, surely you would have taken everything from me. I would be nothing. But God saw me. God saw my affliction. Brothers and sisters, God sees your affliction. He sees the affliction of his people. He sees your pain. Does he not tell the psalmist that he keeps all your tears in a bottle? He keeps track of your tossings and turnings on your bed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. He finishes with Laban, drops the mic, case closed. It's over. Did you see what he did there? Did you see who the judge is between Laban and Jacob? The God of my father is on my side. They present their cases. God saw Jacob's suffering and decided the case already. Each month of each year, for all 20 years, God had been on Jacob's side and he had protected him by his promise and by his providence. And brothers and sisters, this is how God protects his people today. The gospel of Christ is now that for those of you who are in Christ God is on your side. He has already judged your case and you belong to him. But pay attention to that qualification. If you are not in Christ, then God is not on your side. For all the world, every man, woman, and child has sinned. So men, women, children, listen. Haven't you sinned against God? Haven't you broken his good and holy law every day of your life? Haven't we all? Just compare yourself to the Ten Commandments and you'll see that you have become a transgressor of God's holy law. Have you stolen? Have you ever lied? Have you always perfectly honored your father and mother? Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? And these are just a few of the Ten Commandments, and yet we all stand guilty before God, for we have sinned. Because of sin, all of humanity is decidedly against God, and God stands above them as a judge who must punish wrongdoing. And this is very bad news, to say the least. That we deserve for our sin eternal punishment and separation from God. That by your sin yesterday and this morning you have earned God's displeasure and his wrath to fall upon you. But friends, take note of this. Jacob is a figure of Christ. For if we think Jacob was a faithful servant under the house of Laban, how much more is Christ a faithful servant under the household of God? You remember the Jewish leaders pursued Jesus and overtook him. Overcame him until they brought their twisted version of justice down on him. And lash upon lash upon his back, opening up wounds, nails pounded through his flesh 
muscle ligaments of his hands and feet left to die a horrible death of suffocation and shame. And where was the one to hear his case? Who would be on his side in this terrible moment of agony? His disciples were gone. They were not on his side. And even his father seems to have abandoned him for a moment as he suffers. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. That God the Father withdrew his protective presence from his son for the sake of his people. More than that, that God poured out his wrath on the son So that we could be saved. Jesus took the punishment that sinners deserve. And he did this so that we who were enemies of God. Estranged from God. Could be brought over to the Lord's side. So that God would not be our enemy. But so that he would be on our side forever. Well in light of that. I ask with the Apostle Paul. If God is for us. Who can be against us? What do you think? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one can be against us. And you say, well, I think of a lot of things or a lot of people that could be against me. Sickness and pain are against me. Death is against me. Maybe our own personal enemies are against us. Well, at times, governments have been against God's people. Those who have been radicalized by jihadist Islam are against us. They would be right. So what does Paul mean here when he says, who could be against us? Well, what he's saying is, if God is on your side, it doesn't really matter who is against you. If God is on your side, it doesn't really matter who or what is not on your side. If God has got your back, it doesn't matter what comes against you. If God is determined to protect you and to save you, you have nothing to fear. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to us, right? We know that by experience, and we know that by the truth of God's Word. But what it does mean is that bad things don't happen to us without God's permission. And it means bad things don't happen to us without some ultimate good coming from it. For His glory and for the good of His people. And it means that once we arrive at our final destination, our homeland, we will be safe in His kingdom forever. Because God protects His people. Finally, God gives peace to His people. He directs His people. He protects them and He gives them peace. We pick our story back up in verse 43. Laban relents. He still gets a word in or two. These are my daughters and my grandchildren. But he relents. He has already said that he learned by divination that God is with Jacob. They have each presented their cases and he too knows that the Lord is on Jacob's side. So he proposes a solution. Let us make a covenant. And you can hear rock upon rock as they stack them into a heap as a memorial and you can smell the food and the sacrifice you have to wonder how awkward that covenant meal was right all this tension and yet yet they share this covenant meal as was the practice and Laban says the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight 
They will keep out of each other's hair and leave it up to God to watch over the other. And because of this, this covenant, they will have peace with one another. Now, it's not reconciliation. There's still distance from one another in in their relationship, but it is peace. They will not do one another harm. So this conflict has been resolved. Because of this covenant, Jacob and his family will continue on their journey to their homeland. To the land of his fathers. God has given him peace from Laban. And he doesn't need to fear him any longer. And this is meant to show us that God will give us peace as we journey through this life to our homeland. To our heavenly homeland. Now there's inward peace and there's outward peace. There's a subjective peace and an objective peace. So outward, objective peace would be when two nations are fighting and they they agree, we're not going to fight anymore. We are going to be at peace with one another. And then the citizens of those countries could feel inward peace because they know they don't have to worry about bombs dropping on their heads. The kind of peace that Jacob has here is an objective peace. By the covenant, he doesn't have to worry about Laban harming him, and that gives him an inward peace. He doesn't always have to be looking over his shoulder. Because he knows God is watching his back. He can be at peace because he has this objective peace. And brothers and sisters, it's the same with us. But the covenant by which we have peace with God is the covenant in Christ's blood. He poured out his blood and sprinkled it on us, washing us clean and bringing us peace with God. For those who are in Christ, you are no longer at war with God and God is no longer at war with you. You are at peace. This means God no longer sees you as an enemy, but as his child. How often do we get this wrong in our own personal relationship with God? We begin to fear him as an enemy rather than as our father. But I love the lyrics from the song, Jesus, thank you. It says, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Did you hear that? Completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. And this objective peace now gives us inward peace. It's not by Near Eastern meditative practices that we achieve inner peace, not by yoga or simple solitude. We gain peace within only when we have peace without. We get subjective peace only when we know that we have objective peace. And friend, Christ has bought you. He has earned you peace with God through His blood. And with this peace, there is also reconciliation, bringing us to God giving us a seat at God's table in God's family. Now, if you're not a Christian, you may have temporary peace from time to time. Maybe you get it from solitude, from man-made religion. You do your religious duties and it quiets your conscience. Or you know what we're really good at, distracting ourselves. And so you distract yourself with gadgets and work and material things because you then you don't have to notice that you don't have peace with God or peace within your own soul. But friend, don't you see your only hope for peace is Christ. He is your only hope for peace with God. And He is your only hope for peace within. 
at least if you're looking for lasting peace, peace that will last a lifetime and then beyond this life. He is your only hope. You know the story of a woman who was caught in her sin of adultery and scribes and Pharisees dragged her to the temple to accuse her before Jesus. It was kind of a court case. What should be done to her, Jesus? Should she be stoned, as it says in Moses' law? Now, they were just trying to trick Jesus into saying something he'd regret. Jesus bent down and started scribbling something on the ground, but they kept on asking him, Come on, Jesus, what do you say? What are you going to do with this woman? And the suspense builds as we wonder who will hear her case? Who will be on her side? And then Jesus stands up and speaks and says, Let the one who has no sin throw the first stone. And he bends down and writes in the dirt some more. And as he does, what happens? One by one, her her accusers, from the oldest to the youngest, go away. Just Jesus and the woman remain. He stood by her. He stood on her side. Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Brothers and sisters, because of his blood, because of his sacrifice, because of his love for you, for those of you who are in Christ, Jesus says, no one condemns you, and neither do I. For you belong to me. Let's pray together.